0: Welcome to the 344th of the Cthulhu Podcasts. I'm Felbrick. Today we're starting with the 15th part of Wilmot's History of the Zulu War, and then I'll run part 9 of three John Silent stories. Let's head off to that dark continent. CHAPTER Ten: Lord Chelmsford's Policy, Promptness and Decision of Sir Garnet Wallersley The Hunt and Capture of Kechawayo Departure from Natal The Last of the Zulu Kings a Prisoner in the Castle of Cape Town Great Meeting with Zulu Chiefs Sir Garnet Wallersley's Speech Settlement of the Country End of the War Before leaving the shores of South Africa, Lord Chelmsford took occasion at Cape Town to make a public defence of his policy, in which he denied that he had been guilty of hesitation and vacillation. His mind was made up at a very early date, and he went on unswervingly to Alundi by the route he had originally resolved upon. If the work were to be done over again, he would adopt the same plan of campaign. In marching upon Alundi, no calculation was made for assistance from the coast column only indirect support was reckoned upon. After the crushing defeat at Alundi, no advantage would have been gained by endeavouring to penetrate the difficult country lying north of the King's Kral, even had the state of supplies permitted it. While, therefore, one portion of the force retraced its steps towards the Blood River, escorting the sick and the wounded, and taking with it all the empty wagons, the others moved via Kwamamagasa to St. Paul's, and then completed the chain of strongly entrenched posts extending east and west along the centre of Zululand at intervals of about twenty miles. So far, one side of the question. On the other hand, men of unquestioned ability and experience, correspondents for several of the leading journals of the world, did not hesitate to blame Lord Chelmsford severely. These men were on the spot, were qualified to form an opinion, and it is absurd and unjust to imagine that political bias of any sort guided their pens. The Times correspondent complains of the want of a definite plan and speaks of orders having been countermanded and of general uncertainty. Quote, what is wanted is a bolder determination Unquote. on the sixteenth of June he writes. We are wandering towards Yolundi with much as the children of Israel wandered towards Canaan, without plans or even definite notions for the future. Plain common sense plans suffice, if backed by energy, decision and determination. The Telegraph's correspondent tells us that Lord Chelmsford's intelligence department has been singly defective throughout. The correspondent of the Daily News, Mr Archibald Forbes, thoroughly shared these opinions and expresses them with conspicuous power and ability. Indeed, it is almost impossible for anyone to study carefully the proceedings of this protracted campaign from the arrival of reinforcements in March until the Battle of Alundi and not come to conclusions by no means complimentary to the General Commanding-in-Chief. It is urged that carriers such as those employed by Sir Garnet Wallersley, immediately after his arrival, would have immensely facilitated transport, and when we consider that 4,000 British troops at Alundi defeated in the open field, the concentrated power of Quechuaweo, an army of more than 20,000 men, it is hard to believe that a column such as Woods, properly reinforced and moving quickly, would not have been able to finish the war. Sir Garnet Wallersley's proceedings were of the most prompt and vigorous character. Disappointed in not being able to land at Port Durnford, he had to return to D'Urban and proceed overland to General Creelock's coast column. When near the coast, he was gratified by receiving news of the Battle of Alundi, but was subsequently disappointed at Lord Chelmsford's neglecting to take full advantage of the victory. That officer almost immediately resigned, and had an interview with Sir Garnet, whom he met at St Paul's. A Allundi column was organised under Lieutenant Colonel Clark, consisting of the 60th Regiment, Barrow's mounted infantry, two troops of Lonsdale's horse and two troops of the native contingent. This small, movable column was ordered to operate towards the upper waters of the white and black Velosi. Oham, with a burgher force, was to move from Loneburg. On the 21st of July, Sir Garnet had a satisfactory interview with the principal Zulu chiefs, dabulamanzi the king's brother, and one of the chief leaders of his army had surrendered at Fort Chelmsford, Creelux Column on the 11th of July, and numbers of minor chiefs with their people came forward to declare their submission to the British government. Colonel Baker Russell was directed to operate from Interban Koala, in the direction of the Black Ulumvosi, lending assistance to Oham, whose forces were situated in a more northerly direction. Under Colonel Villiers, It was arranged that the Swazis should cross the Pongolo accompanied by political agent MacLeod. As Sir considered that there were more troops in the command than were necessary, the 1st Division and Cavalry Brigade were broken up. Generals Creelock and Marshall went home. The 1st of the 13th, the 1st of the 24th and the 17th Lancers were ordered to leave and several colonial corps were disbanded. Brigadier General Wood and Colonel Buller required rest and proceeded to England, while the marines who arrived by the Jumna from Plymouth were sent back before even they reached Natal. The chase of Quechuao must always form an interesting episode in British colonial history. No war in Zulu land could be said to be thoroughly at an end in which the despot, whose will was still law throughout the entire country, was left uncaptured. The task of securing his person was a very difficult one. The king was looked upon as sacred, and we shall see that the most unbounded loyalty was manifested towards him. The country into which he had retreated was broken and difficult, intersected by forests and unprovided with roads. Above all, the people were thoroughly hostile, and faithful unto death to the monarch who was pursued to death by the hated white man. Nevertheless, the chase was successful and that it was so reflected immense credit upon those engaged in it. The force told off for the duty was organised at Alundy; It was placed under the command of Major Barrow and comprised the King's Dragoon Guards, the Mounted Infantry, Lonsdale's Horse, Captain Norse's Mounted Contingent, Janty's Horse and Captain Hayes, together with a corps of guides under Corporal Uckert. The hunt lasted fourteen days and commenced on a Tuesday afternoon with a forced march of twenty-one hours, during the whole of which time the men were in the saddle. In this manner, Zoniyama's kraal was reached, where it was supposed the king might be. The king had left the day previously with thirty men. Two hours rest, and away over a hilly country. A terribly steep hill was descended, and a kraal visited where Kechawayo had been that morning. The river Mona was then crossed, and a steep hill ascended in order to reach Umbopa's kraal, where the scent was entirely lost. Of course the Zulus knew where the king was, but nothing on earth would induce them to tell. Umbopa, whose son was with Kachawayo, was then made a prisoner, and taken to his son's kraal at a distance of five miles, where some of the king's slaughter oxen were found. The kraal was deserted, Lord Gifford, second in command, was then ordered to scour the country and had a very exciting but unsuccessful chase after a naked Zulu who afterwards turned out to be one of the king's servants appointed to look out and give warning of the approach of pursuers. Forty Zulus were got together by Major Barrow but neither promises nor threats had any effect upon them. They were as loyal to their sable ruler as a faithful highlander to his chief or a loyal cavalier to his king. At last, it was accidentally mentioned that one of Quechuao's own servants was present. With great difficulty, some information was obtained from him, and a promise to put the British force on the right track. At the dawn of the next day, the dense black forests of the Ulum Velosi were entered, and as they proceeded, pots and calabashes evidently dropped in flight were picked up. On, on until the river was reached, but there, alas, the trail was completely wanting. A few kudus quietly grazing was the only sign of life. Lord Gifford was then sent to Funwayo's kraal eight miles distant, and there information was obtained that some of the king's girls had been seen passing that way. Five miles further on was Shimana's kraal, where the same party were again heard of. Pushing through thick bush and long grass in which the small band under Lord Gifford, only eleven in number, could very easily have been cut off, They got at length to a kraal where they heard again of the girls, and thence, taking two men as guides, they proceeded further, taking care to make for the open country in order to intercept Kechawayo in case he endeavoured to reach the Inkahala forest. At last they reached Umgitya's kraal, from whence they could overlook the bush in which they supposed the king to be. Disappointment then met them on every side only relieved by the encounter with the two girls who, in spite of emphatic denials, there was every reason to believe were the property of the king. One of the king's own servants was shortly afterwards captured, and inside his bundle was found a valuable martini-henry rifle of excellent workmanship. Subsequently, this prisoner confessed that he had left the king only two or three days previously. A day's rest was then taken, and while encamped, Seven girls, a young man and a boy were caught who reported that Quechuao was captured and that they had fled from his place two days before. It then turned out that when the pursuing party was encamped on the banks of the black Ulum Velosi they were within three hundred yards of the king some of whose people ran away thinking that his capture was certain. Next day they commenced to scour the bush. There they had no sleep while Zulu beef and Zulu beer were their fare. Most of the party at this time thought the game was up, but Lord Gifford was still full of hope. Back they went, beating the bush on the way to Umbopa's son's place, where the kraal was burned and the cattle were captured. The main body was shortly afterwards reached, and there at last rather precise information was obtained from a Zulu by means of proper persuasive measures. This man was to act as a guide, but no sooner had they entered the bush than he slipped off and escaped. Two places which had evidently been prepared for the king were seen, and the party had to return again to the kraals which had now become headquarters. Two of Oam's men came in professing their loyalty, and were appointed spies, but a little boy revealed the fact that one of them had been with the king down in the bush, and then before all the people, they were told that their double-dealing and humbug were perfectly understood. Trails were followed. People were examined, but all to no purpose. Filthy to the king was paramount. Neither the loss of their cattle, which were carried off, the fear of death, nor the offer of bribes, immense in value to them, were of any avail. Returning from one of their long-exploring expeditions, a woman was suddenly met in the bush, whose fright at the sight of the white man and the guns was so great as to make her confess the place where the king had slept two nights previously. A party went off at dusk to this place, and captured three brothers, who, being questioned under the fear of death, declared that they knew nothing, and that if killed they would die innocently. In the dark forest lit up by the moon and the bright glare of the bivouac fire, three men stood before their captors. It was a subject worthy of the pencil of Salvador Rosa. Interrogatories, threats, promises were all useless until at last the plan was adopted of leading one of the brothers away blindfolded behind a bush, and then causing a rifle to be fired off in such a way as to induce the others to believe that he was shot. At last, overcome by fear, one of them told where the king had slept the night before, and where he had seen him that morning. The other brother, being informed that everything was known, confirmed the intelligence. Away went Lord Gifford and his party with these two men as guides, and at daybreak the kraal was reached and found deserted. The direction that Kechawayo had taken was then pointed out, and having been followed to one of Anonyama's kraals, it was then discovered that the king was only five miles distant, and had halted for the day. It was then absolutely necessary to surround the place without being seen, particularly as his refuge was close by the side of a forest, into which upon the slightest alarm he would immediately escape. As it was known that the dragoons had gone some distance beyond this place, a note was sent by Lord Gifford to Major Martyr, telling him to watch the passes. The latter officer, upon questioning the Zulu, ascertained where the king was, and immediately made such dispositions as to render escape impossible. The kraal was surrounded before Quechuao had the slightest idea that his pursuers were upon him. The men of the Natal native contingent called upon him to surrender but no notice was taken of this summons. Upon Major Marta repeating it, the king came out. The natives stretched out their hands towards him, but with dignity the monarch of the Zulus waved them back and surrendered to Major Marta, accompanying his submission with a request that he might be immediately shot. He was informed in reply that if no resistance were made his person was perfectly safe. Then there was mounting in hot haste, and under the escort of Major Martyr's party, the king with four of his women were hurried away towards Alundi. From that place an ambulance with eight mules was sent out on the morning of the 29th of August to proceed to the Black Velosi River and convey him thence. The king complained of the jolting and walked a good deal of the way. The authority for the preceding account is Mr Lyset, interpreter with Lord Gifford's party. The following is the interesting narrative of the capture given by Major Martyr. That officer left Colonel Clark's column at the Black Ullum Velosi at daylight on Wednesday the 27th, in consequence of the news coming in from General Coley that the King was making for the Ignomi Forest. He had with him his squadron of King's Dragoon Guards, one company of Barton's natives under Captain Plesh, ten mounted irregulars under Lieutenant Wing, and young Oftenbro as interpreter, with four scouts and guides. He sent his men on to threaten the inhabitants of the kraals, that unless they gave him information about the king, and helped him to catch him, he had orders to burn their kraals, take prisoners, capture cattle, and not allow them to cultivate any land until he was caught. At last he got an indirect hint, after sleeping out one night, from a Zulu whom he met named Um who stated that he had come from Umbopa's kraal and had heard that the wind blew that way, pointing to where the king was afterwards taken, but that the troops had better go that way, pointing further to the north-east, so as to get there well. This was enough for the major, and having also met Gifford's messenger with the note to Captain Maurice, who was not near, and opened it, and in which it spoke of his being on the track again, and that he expected to capture the king that night. He felt sure he was also on the track, and would try and assist at the capture. He went on carefully up the hill until near the top he came to a kraal, when in answer to a question for guides, two men started off without speaking or answering any questions, and took their guests to the top of the ignomi forest, at a place with precipitous edges, looking down nearly 1,500 feet. They came to a small open space with long grass, and here the guides put up their hands and the party was halted. From this point Major Marta and his interpreter proceeded on hands and knees and stomach, imitating their guides until 50 yards further on they could look down and see a small kraal of about 20 huts strongly stockaded, standing on a slight rise in the centre surrounded by forest-covered steep slopes on three sides, and only open towards the southwest, This was the place where the king was then, and a plan was quickly arranged to surround it. The natives were stripped of all their clothes to the skin, and taking only their rifles, assegais and cartridges, were to proceed down the left slope, and get round quietly in front across the opening, so as to be in time to cooperate with the dragoons who were to dismount and lead their horses down as best they could, any place which was found at all accessible. The men were all dismounted, and after a little search, a place was found where they could get into a little ravine, and so work very carefully to the bottom. The major led, and left the top at one hundred forty five, reaching the bottom about 3pm, with the loss of two horses and several men injured. They all say it was most horrible work all thick forest with rocky boulders to jump down sometimes several feet. However, all's well that ends well, and the end was worth the means. So, luckily, as there was a slight rise hiding them from the kraal, which was only six hundred yards distant, they managed to mount again en masse, and then directing Captain Gibbing's troops to file off to the right and godsends to the left, they charged at the kraal full gallop, and surrounded it before the people inside knew they were there. Fortunately also the natives first got across the open, but at the same time others completely hemmed them in. It was seen that all the men inside were armed, but they were at once warned that if a shot was fired, they would be fired into all round, and the kraal burnt, so they unwillingly submitted. Major Martyr, dismounted and followed by his interpreter and some dragoons, went in and demanded where the king was. Amkozana, the last chief who remained with the king, pointed to a hut at the other end, and they went there at once and told Quechuao to come out. He refused, asked them to come in to him, wanted to know the rank of the officer in charge, and then requested them to shoot him. After some useless parleying, and as it was foolishness to lose time, he was threatened that unless he came out they would burn the kraal, and not until then did he come out. The first thing he said was that they would never have caught him if they had not come down the mountains, as he had spies on the flats, and thought it quite impossible for any troops but Zulus to come down the precipices at the back. He was told his life would be spared, but that he must go along with them as a prisoner to the white chief at Alundi. They captured, besides the king and Umkazana, the head man of the kraal, six men servants and one boy, and five women and one girl, also four Martini Henry rifles, lots of cartridges, fourteen other guns and many relics of the 24th Regiment, with a lot of the king's cooking and sleeping things. The king caused much intentional delay by walking as slowly as he could. And now it's time to listen to some silence. He listened a long time wholly surrendering himself as his character was, and then strolled homewards in the dusk as the air grew chilly. There was nothing to alarm, put in Dr. Silence briefly. Absolutely nothing, said Fazin. but you know it was all so fantastical and charming that my imagination was profoundly impressed. Perhaps too, he continued, gently explanatory. It was this stirring of my imagination that caused the other impressions, for as I walked back the spell of the place began to steal over me in a dozen ways, though all intelligible ways. There were other things I could not account for in the least, even then. Incidents, do you mean? Hardly incidents, I think. A lot of vivid sensations crowded themselves upon my mind and I could trace them to no causes. It was just after sunset and the tumbled old buildings traced magical outlines against the opalescent sky. It was red and gold. The dusk was running down the twisted streets, and all round the hill the plane pressed in like a dim sea, its level rising with the darkness. The spell of this kind of scene, you know, can be very moving, and it was so that night yet I felt that what came to me had nothing directly to do with the mystery and the wonder of the scene. Not merely the subtle transformations of the spirit, then, that come with beauty, put in the doctor, noticing the hesitation. Exactly, Vizin went on, duly encouraged and no longer so fearful of our smiles at his expense. The impressions came from somewhere else, For instance, down the busy main street where men and women were bustling home from work, shopping at stalls and barrows, idly gossiping in groups, and all the rest of it. I saw that I aroused no interest, and that no one turned to stare at me as a foreigner and a stranger. I was utterly ignored, and my presence among them excited no special interest or attention. And then quite suddenly it dawned upon me with conviction, but all the time this indifference and inattention were merely feigned. Everybody, as a matter of fact, was watching me closely. Every movement I made was known and observed. Ignoring me was all a pretense, an elaborate pretense. He paused for a moment and looked to us to see if we were smiling, and then continued reassured. It was useless to ask me how I noticed this because I simply cannot explain it. But the discovery gave me something of a shock. Before I got back to the inn, however, another curious thing rose up strongly in my mind, and forced recognition of it as true. And this too, I may say at once, was equally inexplicable to me. I mean, I can only give you the fact, as fact it was to me. The little man left his chair and stood on the mat before the fire. His diffidence lessened from now onwards as he lost himself again in the magic of the old adventure. His eyes shone a little already as he talked. Well, he went on, his soft voice rising somewhat with his excitement. I was in a shop when it came to me first, though the idea must have been at work for some long time subconsciously to appear in so complete a form all at once. I was buying socks, I think. He laughed and struggling with my dreadful fringe, when it struck me that the woman in the shop did not care two pins whether I bought anything or not. She was indifferent whether she made a sale or did not make a sale. She was only pretending to sell. This sounds a very small and fanciful incident to build upon what follows. But really it was not small. I mean, it was the spark that lit the line of powder and ran along to the big blaze in my mind. For the town, I suddenly realized, was something other than I so far saw it. The real activities and interests of the people were elsewhere and otherwise than appeared. Their true lives lay somewhere out of sight behind the scenes. Their busyness was but the outward semblance that masked their actual purposes. They bought and sold and ate and drank and walked about the streets. Yet all the while, the main stream of their existence, lay somewhere beyond my ken, underground, in secret places. In the shops and at the stalls they did not care whether I purchased their articles or not. At the inn they were indifferent to my staying or going. Their life lay remote from my own, springing from hidden mysterious sources, coursing out of sight and unknown. It was all a great elaborate pretense, assumed possibly for my benefit possibly for purposes of their own. But the main current of their energies ran elsewhere. I almost felt as an unwelcome foreign substance might be expected to feel when it's found its way into the human system, and the whole body organises itself to eject it or to absorb it. The town. They were doing this very thing to me. This bizarre notion presented itself forcibly to my mind as I walked home to the inn. I began busily to wonder wherein the true life of this town could lie, and what were the actual interests and activities of its hidden life. And now that my eyes were partly opened, I noticed other things too that puzzled me, first of which, I think, was the extraordinary silence of the whole place. Positively, the town was muffled. Although the streets were paved with cobbles, and people moved about silently, Softly with padded feet, like cats. Nothing made noise, all was hushed, subdued, muted. The very voices were quiet, low-pitched, like purring. Nothing clamorous, vermin, or emphatic seemed able to live in that drowsy atmosphere of soft dreaming that soothed this little hill-town into its sleep. It was like the woman at the inn, an outward repose screening intense inner activity and purpose. And yet there was no sign of lethargy or sluggishness anywhere about it. The people were active and alert. Only a magical and uncanny softness lay over them all, like a spell. Vezin passed a hand across his eyes for a moment, as though the memory had become very vivid. His voice had run off into a whisper, so that we heard only the last part with some difficulty. He was telling a true thing, obviously, yet something that he both liked and hated telling. I went back to the inn, he continued presently, in a louder voice, and I dined. I felt a new strange world about me. My old world of reality was receding. Here, whether I liked it or no was something new and incomprehensible. I regretted having left the train so impulsively. An adventure was upon me, and I loathed adventures as foreign to my nature. Moreover, this was the beginning, apparently, of an adventure somewhere deep within me, in a region I could not check or measure, and a feeling of alarm mingled itself with my wonder, alarm for the stability of what I had for forty years recognised as my personality. I went upstairs to bed, my mind teeming with thoughts that were unusual to me, and of rather a haunting description. By way of relief, I kept thinking of that nice, prosaic, noisy train, and all those wholesome, blustering passengers. I almost wished I were with them again, but my dreams took me elsewhere. I dreamed of cats and soft-moving creatures, and the silence of life in a dim, muffled world beyond the senses. Vesin stayed on from day to day, indefinitely, much longer than he had intended. He felt in a kind of dazed, somnolent condition. He did nothing in particular, but the place fascinated him, and he could not decide to leave. Decisions were always very difficult for him, and he sometimes wondered how he had ever brought himself to the point of leaving the train. It seemed as though someone else might have arranged it for him, and once or twice his thoughts ran to the swarthy Frenchman who had sat opposite. If only he could have understood that long sentence, ending so strangely with, A cause de sommeil et à de chats. He wondered what it meant. Meanwhile, the hushed softness of the town held him prisoner, and he sought in a muddling, gentle way to find out where the mystery lay and what it was all about. But his limited French and his constitutional hatred of active investigation made it hard for him to buttonhole anybody and to ask questions. He was content to observe and to watch and to remain negative. The weather held on calm and hazy, and this just suited him. He wandered about the town till he knew every street and alley. The people suffered him to come and go without let or hindrance, though it became clearer to him every day that he was never free himself from observation the town watched him as a cat watches a mouse and he got no nearer to finding out what they were all so busy with or where the main stream of their activities lay this remained hidden the people were as soft and mysterious as cats but that he was continually under observation became more evident from day to day for instance When he strolled to the end of the town and entered a little public green garden beneath the ramparts and seated himself upon one of the empty benches in the sun, he was quite alone, at first. Not another seat was occupied. The little park was empty, the paths deserted. Yet within ten minutes of his coming, there must have been fully twenty persons scattered about him, some strolling aimlessly along the gravel walks, staring at the flowers, and others seated on wooden benches, enjoying the sun like himself. None of them appeared to take any notice of him, yet he understood quite well that they had all come there to watch. They kept him under close observation. In the street they had seemed busy enough hurrying upon their various errands, yet these were suddenly all forgotten, and they had nothing to do but loll and laze in the sun their duties unremembered. Five minutes after he left, the garden was again deserted, the seats vacant. But in the crowded street, it was the same thing again. He was never alone. He was ever in their thoughts. By degrees, too, he began to see how it was he was so cleverly watched, yet without the appearance of it. The people did nothing directly. They behaved obliquely. He laughed in his mind as the thought closed itself in words but the phrase exactly described it. They looked at him from angles, which naturally should have led their sight in another direction altogether. Their movements were oblique too, so far as they concerned himself. The straight direct thing was not their way, evidently. They did nothing, obviously. If he entered a shop to buy, the woman walked instantly away and busied herself with something at the further end of the counter though answering at once when he spoke, showing that she knew he was there and that this was only her way of attending to him. It was the fashion of the cat she followed. Even in a dining-room of the inn, the bewhiskered and courteous waiter, lithe and silent in all his movements, never seemed able to come straight to his table for an order or a dish. He came by zigzags, indirectly, vaguely, and so that he appeared to be going to another table altogether and only turned suddenly at the last moment, and was there beside him. Fezin smiled curiously to himself as he described how he began to realise these things. Other tourists, there were none in the hostel, but he recalled the figures of one or two old men, inhabitants, who took their dejeuner and the dinner there, and remembered how fantastically they entered the room in similar fashion. First they paused in the doorway, peering about the room, And then after a temporary inspection, they came in, as it were, sideways, keeping close to the walls, so that he wondered which table they were making for, and at the last minute making almost a quick little run to their particular seat. And again, he thought of the ways and methods of cats. Other small incidents, too, impressed him as all part of this queer and soft town, with its muffled indirect life for the way some of the people appeared and disappeared with extraordinary swiftness puzzled him exceedingly. It may all have been perfectly natural, he knew, yet he could not make it out how the alleys swallowed them up and shot them forth in a second of time when there was no visible doorway or openings near enough to explain the phenomenon. Once he followed two elderly women who he felt had been particularly examining him from across the street quite near the inn this was, and saw them turn a corner a few feet only in front of him. Yet when he sharply followed on their heels, he saw nothing but an utterly deserted alley stretching in front of him with no sign of a living thing, and the only opening through which they could have escaped was a porch some fifty yards away, which not the swiftest human runner could have reached in time. And in just such a fashion, people appeared when he never expected them once when he heard a great noise of fighting going on behind a low wall, and hurried up to see what was going on. What should he see? But a group of girls and women engaged in a vociferous conversation, which instantly hushed itself to the normal whispering note of the town, when his head appeared over the wall. And even then, none of them turned to look at him directly, but slunk off, with the most unaccountable rapidity, into doors and sheds across the yard and their voices, he thought, had sounded so like, so strangely like, the angry snarling of fighting animals, almost of cats. The whole spirit of the town, however, continued to evade him as something elusive, protean, screened from the outer world, and at the same time intensely, genuinely vital. And since he had now formed part of its life, this concealment puzzled and irritated him. More, it began rather to frighten him. Out of the mist that slowly gathered about his extraordinary surface thought, there rose again the idea about the inhabitants, that they were waiting for him to declare himself, to take an attitude to do this or or to do that, and that when he had done so they in their turn would at length make some direct response, accepting or rejecting him. Yet the vital matter concerning which his decision was awaited came no nearer to him. Once or twice he purposefully followed little processions or groups of citizens in order to find out if possible on what purpose they were bent. But they always discovered him in time and dwindled away, each individual going his or her own way. It was always the same. He never could learn what their main interest was. The cathedral was ever empty, the old church of St. Martin at the other end of the town deserted. They shopped because they had to, and not because they wished to. The booths stood neglected, the stalls unvisited, the little cafes desolate. Yet the streets were always full, the townsfolk ever on the bustle. Can it be, he thought to himself, yet with a deprecating laugh that he should have dared to think anything so odd, Can it be that these people are people of the twilight? That they live only at night their real life? And come out honestly only with the dusk? That during the day they make a sham through brave pretense and after the sun is down their true life begins? Have they the souls of night things? And is the whole blessed town in the hands of cats? The fancy somehow electrified him with little shocks of shrinking and dismay. Yet though he affected to laugh, he knew that he was beginning to feel more than uneasy, and that strange forces were tugging with a thousand invisible cords at the very centre of his being. Something utterly remote from his ordinary life, something that had not waked for years, began faintly to stir in his soul, sending feelers abroad into his brain and heart, shaping queer thoughts, and penetrating even into certain of his minor actions something exceedingly vital to himself, to his soul, hung in the balance. And always, when he returned to the inn about the hour of sunset, he saw the figures of the townsfolk stealing through the dusk from their shop doors, moving century-wise to and fro at the corners of the streets, yet always vanishing silently, like shadows at his near approach. And as the inn invariably closed its doors at ten o'clock, he had never yet found the opportunity he rather half-heartedly sought to see for himself what the town could give of itself at night. The words of the Frenchman rang in his ears more and more often, though still as yet without any definite meaning. Moreover, something made him sleep like the dead. And that's all for today except to remind you of my Patreon account, where you can support my production of audiobooks. As a patron, you get access not just to the stories published here in the podcast, but also all the other books I record. At the moment, I'm recording a classic sci-fi novel called Plague Ship, Nightmare Tales by Blavatsky, and the final volume of Charles Oman's History of the Peninsula War. Please, go to patreon.com and search for Felbrick, that's F-E-L-B-R-I-G-G. This file is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. Until next time.